primarily Matthew 27, but we'll start in Matthew 26, verse 47, and read through chapter 27, verse 54. While Jesus was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father, and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled, that it must be so? At that hour Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place, that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, You have said so. But I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied it with an oath, I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. When Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, What is that to us? See to it yourself. 
And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed, and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury, since it is blood money. So they took counsel and, and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled by what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the, the Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. And they went, as they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry the cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. 
And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness all over the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani? That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, This man is calling for Elijah. And one of them at at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the, uh, the others said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly this was the Son of God. There were also many women there, looking on from a distance, who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. So far, our reading from the Word of God. As we reflect on what we've read, let's sing together from hymn 25, stanzas 5 and 6. The text to which we'll be giving some special attention, by which we will also interpret, uh, the lens through which we will interpret Matthew 26 and 27, Uh, is coming from Romans 5, just the first two verses of Romans 5. Here the Apostle Paul writes, reflecting on the death of Christ, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So far, the Word of God. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ and the guests among us, it should never cease to strike us as an odd thing that we Christians gather on a day that we call Good Friday to remember the brutal suffering and death of our Lord Jesus Christ hanging upon a Roman cross. It really is a strange thing, isn't it, that we call this day Good Friday. Uh, No other religion either celebrates anything like this, uh, the brutal death of their founder, as a day to celebrate. Uh, If we forget how strange it is, just think for a moment about uh, what it sounds like to to those outside the church. Uh, Think about the fact that right now our sign outside uh, says that Jesus' death And resurrection brings life everlasting. Now, of course, to many in our post-Christian culture, there are many who will understand what those words mean. At least they'll ring some familiar bells. But to many others, it is an absurd thing. Jesus' death brings life. These people, the followers of Jesus, celebrate his death. And why in the world do we call it good Friday, if it's the day on which the one we love was whipped, murdered, and hung upon a cross to suffocate in agony and die. 
And yet the world must recognize, uh, isn't it, that, that in, in that name, Good Friday, that there is something unique, something special. There must be something unique about the death of Christ. There must be some reason why Christians call it good. Uh, and there certainly is. And that's what we want to think about this morning. That's as Paul reflects on the Lord Jesus' death as well, uh, sees something precious and good in his death. Now, we read the story just a few moments ago about Jesus' final hours and uh, his death from Matthew 27. As we read that, one thing we should bear in mind is Matthew's own background. Uh, Matthew was a tax collector before Jesus had called him to be one of his disciples. And tax collectors were a hated, a detested group among God's people. Uh, even more than they are among Canadian, in Canadian culture, uh, tax collectors in Israel were a detested people. Uh, they were hated for at least a couple reasons. One, because to the Jews, they were the embodiment of Roman rule, Roman tyranny. Uh, they were the, the people through whom Rome took their money to fund Rome's armies to rule over Israel with an iron fist. Uh, So they were despised for that. And if that wasn't enough, they were also typically corrupt. Uh, They would charge in tax even more than the law required so they could pocket the extra change uh, and fund their own lavish homes and lavish lifestyles, often complete with prostitutes and, and every kind of immorality. They were corrupt. And everyone knew they were corrupt. Even they themselves knew it. Well, that was Matthew then, uh, before he became one of Jesus' disciples. The other thing we should know about Matthew is, uh, as much as he was a traitor to his people, he was still one of his people. He was still a Jew. And that very much shows in Matthew's gospel. Uh, The gospel account that Matthew wrote uh, is... Uh, reveals that that he knew the Jewish scriptures as well as anybody else. Uh, He was familiar with his Bible. Uh, Now, some of that knowledge, I'm sure, came after Matthew became a disciple of Christ. Uh, But in any case, the Gospel of Matthew is the quintessentially Jewish gospel. Uh, The gospel written from the Jewish perspective. It it is steeped from from right in the beginning all the way to the end. It's steeped in the Jewish scriptures and the Jewish religious life. Uh, And it's from that perspective then, from that lens, that Matthew records the death of Jesus. Uh, So to understand his gospel, we need to understand the world out of which he is, is writing. And if you do that, the first thing you encounter in the Jewish religion and the Jewish worldview, uh, the first thing you will see is the absolute holiness of God. It's written on nearly every page of the Jewish scriptures of of our Old Testament. Genesis 1 and 2 uh, record the goodness and the wisdom and power of God, but already in Genesis 3, you are introduced to the holiness of God. Uh, God's absolute unwillingness to have anything to do with sin. Uh, God says to Adam and Eve already in Genesis 3, uh, You may eat from all the trees of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, and in the day you eat of it you shall die. Uh, God is a holy God. And the Jews, uh, whatever they, they failed to understand, they did understand that, though they failed to live in light of it. Now we know that Adam and Eve ate from that tree. And as a result, 
the holiness of God had them cast out of his presence, removed from the garden, exiled from the presence and fellowship of God. In fact, God posted at the, at the entrance to the garden, God posted two seraphim with flaming swords, uh, swords of fire, to guard the entrance to the garden to declare, you are not welcome here. You may not come here to the presence of God. He is holy and you are not. So we see the holiness of God. Until you understand the holiness of God, brothers and sisters, uh, you will never, ever appreciate uh, what makes Good Friday good. Because it's there in the holiness of God. Until you come to terms with God's holiness, uh, the, the reality and the implications of Good Friday will not hit you, will not impact you the way that they ought. And we see this again and again as the story of the Bible progresses. Uh, We see the holiness of God. Uh, So you see God's grace, God's mercy. God calls Abraham, for example, out of Ur uh, to to, to make of Abraham a nation with whom God will dwell. You see God's mercy. But even there, you see God's holiness again. If you read through the story of Exodus, uh, the, the grace is that God dwells with his people. But it's a holy, he is a holy God. Uh, the, the, the very message of Exodus is that to dwell with God happens under only very strict conditions. God set up the tabernacle in the midst of the camp and posted the Levites around as a guard. And a guard not to protect the tabernacle from the people, but to protect the people from the God who dwelt in that tabernacle. Now, God is willing to be with his people but can only do so under strict conditions. Uh, and, uh, and for their protection, they may not come too close to him. He is a holy God. Uh, the people learn this more and more as they uh, spent their years uh, in the wilderness and afterwards with God. Uh, you think of when Moses uh, was on the mountain with God and, and he asked God to see God's glory. And, and God passed before him. This is Exodus 34 declaring, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but who will by no means clear the guilty, who will visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. He is, brothers and sisters, a holy God. And you see even there in that account, Moses' response as he's he's confronted with the glory of God. He falls on his face and he worships and he begs God to pardon his sin and the sin of God's people. Uh, This is what we do, confronted with the holiness of God. We see suddenly the ugliness of our sin. And really, that is the story of the Old Testament. It is God working to restore a broken, sinful world and God's people within that world uh, beginning to learn what it means now to dwell as sinners with a righteous, holy God. And so at the center of the Jewish world stood the temple communicating that very same message. The temple with its curtains separating the the holy of holies, the presence of God separating him 
from the people outside. The altar of bronze, bronze being the metal symbolizing God's judgment. Uh, The altar of bronze standing out front of the temple, constantly burning, burning every day with the flesh of animals, the sacrifices people brought, every day reminding the people, God is holy. You, You are unholy. Your sins pile up before him like the flesh of these animals. That's the world, then, that Matthew is writing from. Uh, Historians from Matthew's day record how the blood literally flowed from the temple like a river. It was a constant stream flowing out uh, from the temple. And all the while, at the center of that temple stood this thick, heavy curtain as a constant reminder, there is a barrier between you and God. Uh, historians record that the, the curtain of Herod's temple was 60 feet high and four inches thick, woven from, from finely woven linen, uh, making it immensely heavy. Uh, historians record, they're probably exaggerating, but they record that it took 300 priests to be able to wash that curtain. Uh, that is probably an exaggeration when you crunch the numbers, but it goes to show they, they at least understood how heavy, how immense uh, that curtain was. And it communicated one simple message. God is holy. You are not. There is a barrier between you and God. There is no coming into God's own presence. He is to be feared and all the more feared by an unclean and sinful people. Uh, The closest you will ever get, uh, said the temple, communicated the temple, the closest you will ever get is into God's courtyard and even then only with blood sacrifice. And I know, brothers and sisters, all that may seem very foreign to us. We live a long ways away from, from that place and from that time. Uh, but it really shouldn't. It shouldn't feel so foreign to us. Because, brothers and sisters, don't we know, don't you know, how unholy you are? Uh, if we're honest, the, the, the temple reflects a reality that we live with uh, on a daily basis, that every human being lives with and is all too familiar with. We know Deep down, we know that there is much that is unclean within us. There is much that is wrong about us. Uh, There is evil that dwells in us. It's not for nothing that even the the, the ancient Mayans living in in Mexico, uh, as far removed from the biblical world as as one could ever be, uh, they nonetheless sacrificed human beings and and often their own children to their gods. They recognized the gods uh, are holy and we are unholy. terribly distorted view of the world, and yet they recognize one truth. We're sinners, and and there's something wrong with us as sinners. Something stands between us and God. Uh, We know uh, today, too, in our culture, we know just as much in our modern world that same truth. Uh, Everyone lives with that. There's something wrong with us. We are sinners. Now, people have all sorts of different ways to put that truth from their minds, to fill their life with distractions. But we all have, at least in our quiet moments, that nagging awareness. Uh, There's no running from God. He sees, he knows, and he is rightfully and righteously displeased with what he sees. So as shocking and as foreign as, as and unpleasant as the whole temple system 
may seem to us, it's only when we grasp that truth about God, He's holy. And that truth about ourselves, we are unholy. Uh, Those truths that were embodied in the temple itself, then we can finally be honest with ourselves and come to see the beauty of a day like Good Friday. Uh, This is why, uh, as much as most of us probably don't enjoy reading books like Exodus or even less Leviticus with all of its rules and regulations and... and, uh, and so forth for for the priests and the temple and the tabernacle. It's nonetheless good that we read those books from time to time to to be reminded of that which we should never forget, the holiness of God, because that has never changed. God has not become less holy over the years. God has not lowered His standard over the years. He is the same holy God. And it's when we grasp that, uh, that we begin to recognize that the whole temple system, as ghastly and as gory as it was, was a gift of God's grace. Yeah, the temple was a gift of God's grace. Because God could have forsaken his world already back in Genesis or in the time of Noah, could have drowned everyone, uh, never had, in the time of Abraham, never had to call Abraham out of Ur, but he did. Uh, he went and made a covenant with an unholy people and put the temple there as a way to make that possible for him as the holy God to dwell in the midst of an unholy people. Uh, it was God's grace that allowed his people to know him in spite of that barrier that did exist. Uh, well, brothers and sisters, it's when we, when we grasp these truths and we come to terms with them and, and accept the truth of them, that God is holy, that I am not, uh, that I ought to have nothing to do with God because of how unholy I am. When we come to terms with that, then we see what makes Good Friday truly good. Because it's on this Friday 2,000 years ago that the holy God entered into this world, this time not in a temple with, with stones and gold, but in the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ, and took upon himself what those sacrifices only pointed forward to, his own holy wrath against our sin, and there he nailed it to the cross in that bloody spectacle that we remember on Good Friday, such that on this Friday, the thing that separated us from God, the barrier that existed between us and God, was finally overcome. It's on this Friday, 2,000 years ago, that the wrath of God and the judgment of God against our sin found its perfect satisfaction and left no debt outstanding as God himself bore the curse to make us clean. Uh, That's why Matthew records in in verse 51, he almost does it just in passing, it's only half of a verse, but he records that when Jesus cried out with a loud voice and, and breathed his last breath and gave up his spirit, that behold, it says, the curtain of the temple was torn in two, that massive, heavy barrier was torn in two. 
I'll stop and consider what a momentous thing that is. As the Son of God gave His life to take upon Himself on the cross, all the unholiness, all the uncleanness of God's people to condemn it there on the cross. Uh, That barrier that existed because of our uncleanness, that barrier could be taken away, which means we have access to the very presence of God. God didn't become any less holy. We didn't become any less sinful. Yet the curtain was taken away. The way for sinful creatures to be reconciled to the holy God was made open. That, brothers and sisters, is what makes this Friday so good. I'll say it again. You will never understand what makes this Friday good, what makes it worthy of celebration until you reckon with the holiness of God which has never changed and the dreadful uncleanness of your sin which has not been taken away uh, in in yourself uh, and, and which in the sight of God is most worthy of eternal judgment and hell. Uh, when you reckon with those and you see there in the bloody cross of Christ that, that the unthinkable payment was made for your sin by which you can be reckoned as righteous. Righteous in the sight of God. Uh, there was made peace between you and your God. Peace. That's what the Apostle Paul reflects on and marvels at in in Romans 5. There's peace. There's peace between us and our God. Now, Paul comes from a very different background than than Matthew. They're both Jewish, and so we easily uh, lump the two of them together. Uh, But Paul was from a very different tradition. Uh, There were the Sadducees and there were the Pharisees. Paul was a Pharisee. Uh, So Matthew, as as one involved among the elite of God's people and and mixed together with the Romans, belonged to the Sadducees, uh, who were regarded as the the theological liberals of of that day, always toying with Greek philosophy and mixing that into, into Scripture. That was Matthew's tradition. Paul comes from the very opposite end of the spectrum of Jewish religion. He was a Pharisee. And for Paul, righteousness with God is is not by sacrifice, the way it is through the temple, but it is by law-keeping. It's by keeping the law of God we make ourselves righteous before God. So Paul's religion was one of meticulous law-keeping, self-righteousness, insufferable pride. But underneath that too was the same recognition that every human being lives with, that every Pharisee had to live with, that, that you know in your heart that your religion is a sham, that God knows who you are, that your religion doesn't make you a good person, that there's nothing righteous inherently about you. God is still holy. You are still a sinner. And that's true no matter how much you pretend otherwise, no matter matter how many people you convince otherwise, God knows who you are. That's the background Paul is coming from. 
And yet Paul too, like Matthew, came to know the grace of the cross. Uh, He encountered the risen Lord Jesus, if you remember the story, on his road to Damascus. As he went to, to persecute Christians, to separate men and women from their families, to put them in prison for believing in Christ. Uh, he, he calls himself very openly several times the chief of sinners. He knows who he was. And yet there on that road, as he encountered the risen Lord Jesus, he too uh, came to know the peace, or at least in the months and years afterwards, came to understand the peace that Christ bought for us on the cross to make wretched sinners right before a holy God. Uh, So listen again to the words of the Apostle Paul, considering all that he had gone through to come to this point. Paul says in Romans 5, Therefore, since we've been justified, that's made righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Consider what Paul had to go through to come to the recognition of that truth. Uh, Do you hear in those words, brothers and sisters, what makes Good Friday so good? Uh, Do you understand why we would celebrate the gruesome spectacle of the death of our Savior? Because there peace has been made between us and God. Uh, We celebrate his death because it's precisely there that we sinners are reckoned righteous, reckoned pure, in the sight of God. And through Christ, we have peace with our God. Uh, Paul says even further, that means that we stand in God's grace. We stand in God's grace. And that means the most holy, righteous God who knows our sins. That hasn't changed. Uh, Who knows the things that we ourselves are ashamed uh, to to admit even to ourselves. Uh, Who knows the the selfish, evil, lustful thoughts of our heart. Uh, Who knows them better than we know ourselves receives us in grace. Receives us in his own presence in grace because our debt is fully paid at the cross of Christ. And so he welcomes us into his very presence. Uh, Paul says again, we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. We stand in God's grace, forgiven, restored, reconciled, and assured that God's favor, God's favor, God's love stands upon you uh, because of Christ. That God's favor does not go, go up or down on every given day depending upon your performance, but is constant because he looks at you through the lens of the blood of Christ. He sees in you a righteous people Because he sees you through the lens of a righteous Christ. Which means you may turn to him. You may call upon him as your God. As your father even. And be confident of his love. And we struggle sometimes to accept that. To accept the love of God. We say I don't deserve. I don't deserve God's love. How could God love me? No you you don't deserve God's love. Uh, And no, it's not because you are lovely. It's not because you are good in yourself. But quite the opposite, it's because He is good and has made the way possible for Him to be reconciled with you, to be at peace with you. 
Well, that's the message, brothers and sisters, of Good Friday. And because that's what Christ has done for us, you, like Paul, can stand there, can stand in God's grace, knowing my Father loves me because Christ died for me. You can say with Paul, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We know at the cross of Christ, our destiny, our future, our inheritance was radically changed. Uh, We sinners who were lost, alienated from God, hostile to Him, and quickly headed on our way to eternal judgment under that righteous judgment of the Holy God, we, through the cross of Christ, now stand in God's grace. And we look forward not to hell, not to judgment. We look forward to the glory of God. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. What that means is, uh, if you don't know Christ, then this life is the closest to heaven that you'll ever get. But if you have come to know Christ and you stand in His grace, this life is the closest to hell that you will ever get. Uh, From here, it only gets better. If you've confessed your sins, you've sought God's mercy in Christ, you've put your trust in Him, this life truly is the closest to hell you will ever be. Uh, And even in this life, as you grow in the knowledge of God's love, in the assurance of His grace, you have already now the foretaste of eternal life. Uh, You look forward uh, to the glory of God that you've already come to experience here in this life. Uh, You have as your inheritance the presence and the nearness, the nearness of God Himself. All that God is in His wisdom, in His power, in His goodness, in His mercy, all that God is, He is and forever shall be for you who belong to Him through Christ. Uh, He will be for you for eternity. He will be with you for eternity. He will be ever beside you. He will even be within you through His Spirit for eternity. Uh, So, brothers and sisters, though Good Friday is indeed a day when we we do grieve on this day, we do grieve the, the terrible reality of our sin that brought Christ to the cross in the first place, Uh, we remember that it it was our hands that drove the nails, uh, that drove His hands uh, to the cross. Uh, There certainly our sin is exposed. Uh, There the sickness of my heart is made visible. Uh, There my pride, my stubbornness, my refusal to repent is put on display. Yet there is something else there as well. Because we see there in the cross of Christ the deep love of a holy God for an unholy, unlovely people choosing to rescue them, choosing to save them. So there in the cross we see, uh, though there is much darkness, and you see those hours of darkness where Christ hung on that cross, you see hope breaking through that darkness. Because there Christ was on the cross for the joy, says Hebrews, that was set before him. He was there because he had a purpose to be there, to save. And he was looking forward to the joy of you being with him for eternity because of what he bought for you on the cross. Amen. Let's respond to God's word by singing from hymn 27, stanzas 1 through 8.